Hello everyone and welcome to the Encrypted Podcast. Encrypted is the Middle East's first and largest podcast network dedicated to blockchain and crypto assets. I'm your host Ahmed Al-Balaghi and in today's episode we have two amazing lawyers who are actively leveraging smart contracts for the current line and future line of work. Today we have Mark Beer who's a president of the International Association for Court Administration and a lawyer turned tech entrepreneur Alessandro Palombo the CEO and co-founder of Jewel. Both will be joining us in this episode of Encrypted. And we talk extensively about what smart contracts really are, the roles they play in the future in both codifying principles and contracting machines, and how billions of people can benefit from this. And of course, we tackle the million dollar question, which is what will the roles of lawyers and law firms be in a smart contracting future world? But before we jump in, I would really want to thank those who have been supporting the show. And remember, you could support us in any way possible. You could subscribe to the podcast, you could rate the show, you could review the show. All those ratings and reviews help us a lot. And you could also share the podcast on your social media. Let your friends, your family, your colleagues know about what we're doing as well. Thank you so much for tuning in and we really hope you enjoyed this episode. Hello everyone and welcome to the 38th episode of Encrypted. My name is Ahmed Al-Balaghi and I'm coming to you live from Area 2071 here in Dubai. I'd also like to announce that we have a new co-host on the podcast. His name is Nick Watson. <laughs> hey guys, thanks for having me. Great to have you. And we have two special guests with us today. We have Mark Beer and Alessandro. Say hello guys. Hey guys. Hey guys, nice to be here. Thanks, Ahmed. Thanks, uh, Nick. And of course, uh, also Forte Market for the fantastic conference of today. Awesome stuff. Uh, Mark, could you quickly introduce yourself and then we could go to Alessandro afterwards? Yep. So, I'm a lawyer for some years, worked out in the Middle East, now back in the UK. Firm believer that blockchain is the future. Firm believer that blockchain and smart contracts can improve the lives of over a billion people a year. Hello, this is Alessandro. I'm the CEO co-founder of Jure. I'm one lawyer that basically then changed it in a tech entrepreneur. And we do with Jure, as in a few weeks will be you know, public on the new website, smart legal contract uh, editor. Basically, it's, it's, it's like the weeks for smart legal contracts and some dispute resolution systems. And we are probably the only one solution to be legally binding for do arbitration about also smart contracts. So yeah, basically we leverage blockchain and law. Great. Great to have both of you on and thank you very much for, for coming on to the show. Mark, could you quickly give us a very layman definition of what smart contracts are? Well, they're contracts that people can't cheat at. They're contracts where if you promise to be paid, you'll get paid. They're contracts which can be enforced, not only locally but internationally, which is a rarity nowadays. It's very hard to enforce a contract internationally. And they're contracts which are clear, they don't have ambiguity. And because they use blockchain technology, they're easy to put together, they're scalable, they're modular, and they present the future of legal contracting. All right, great. And today we were at the Smart Contracts Conference. How did you guys find it? What were your biggest takeaways? What was sort of the, the vibe amongst the attendees? Because most of them were lawyers, they were here to sort of learn more about the, the concept. 
Well, um, we, we, we work basically on a daily basis with lawyers and one interesting stuff I think for a crypto community is that there is a, let's say, a huge portion of, uh, you know, middle-aged lawyers, basically around 40 years old, that they got really interested in blockchain and smart contracts and whatever. Someone of, the, of you could think, oh yeah, basically because they are, you know, scared of losing their job, but it's not only that, because in some way also lawyers start to understand that they, they can improve the quality of the service they provide in some way, thanks also to you know smart contracts and blockchain technology. So the vibe today has been really interesting because basically there, there has been a, a huge interest for these topics and the level also of the discussion was pretty pretty interesting. And we discussed about you know smart contracts and dispute resolution, which is a, you know an angle which is particularly interesting. I, I think that this this is also you know a good point to be clarified because someone could think yeah but. With smart contracts, we don't need a dispute resolution because there is no there is no chance for dispute. But it is not really in this way, no. Well, you know, I'll take objection because since when is forty middle aged? <coughs> now, uh, forty is the new thirty now. So youthful, youthful lawyers about the age of forty were there. I don't think they're there because they're frightened. I think they're there because they want to learn how to make money out of it, and and that's sort of the nature of. When the law changes, it's about adapt or die. And it's not adapt or die over millennia, over thousands of years, or over hundreds of years in that Darwinian sense. It's adapt or die like Nokia. It's adapt or die like BlackBerry. And if lawyers don't adapt to a new world of doing business, they will die. Not physically die, but their income will fall away. And I always, it takes me back to Henry VI, the Shakespeare play, where if you remember, Jack Cade is sort of standing there saying, I want a perfect world, I want a utopian world. When I'm king, I, I want everybody to be clothed. I don't want there to be money. I want everyone to be fed at the public purse. And if you remember, his sidekick, Dick the Butcher, said, well, if you want that, you need to kill all the lawyers. And there's a real sense that this utopian world of blockchain, which takes away the central ledger, which takes away the power of institutions to control people and to charge people what they want, there's a real fear amongst the legal community if you take that away, maybe it will achieve <clears throat> what Dick Cade was saying, uh, what Dick the Butcher was saying rather, which is it'll destroy all lawyers. Of course, it won't destroy all lawyers. It'll destroy lawyers who aren't adapt, mm -hmm. adapted and adaptable to cope with a world in which contracts no longer are bits of paper written with a quill and ink, but are actually embedded, encoded and enforceable using the blockchain. Perfect. So now, if we, if we talk about the use case of smart contracts globally, and then we talk about enterprise business, I'm sort of like the enterprise space, so, you know, a bit boring. They're like lawyers, as you, as you can imagine. What? Um, what? Where did that come from? <laughs> you yeah, make your guests feel welcome. Yeah. So what would you choose? In, in terms of the context of blockchain globally being adopted, what's going to create the mass adoption? Is it going to be enterprise or is it going to be sort of consumer forward facing blockchain or smart contracts? Well, mate, sometimes to these kind of questions, I think the right answer is both in some, in some way. My idea is both because let's say that, you know, many companies will adopt blockchain in their relationships with consumers. So I think there is also this kind of, you know, argument to be done. Maybe some, you know, medium-sized big companies will drive the adoption thanks to their user base and consumer base. Just let me give you an example, probably. You probably heard of the, um, you know, the test that has been done with insurances for, you know, putting a smart contract on 
auto automated, basically, reimbursement for flight delays. So in that case, uh, how do you qualify that kind of vertical? Is it a B2B or B2C? Because basically it's, a, of course, a B2C. So a single enterprise basically showed us how it's possible to drive a massive adoption also to consumers. My personal sentiment is this. Probably the enterprise will do a a really important role in that because basically they will, you know, they will be able to educate in some way or force in some way <clears throat> a kind of adoption. But in my opinion, there is even today a strong willing from consumers, from you know, single persons to use blockchain in everyday life. What we do basically also, you know, goes in that direction because next year we want to basically empower you to create in a few minutes a good. Legal, legally binding smart contract in a few minutes, make a payment with stablecoin, and be really sure for you know the business relationship you are creating, even if your counterparty is on in China, in Russia, in from another part of the world. So this is absolutely amazing. If we think, I think one concept which is we should be to you know address it immediately. Everything is peer to peer. So the interesting part, as Mark was saying, is that all this kind of you know trust is made also you know, in a legally binding form without any kind of you know, central authority that you know, has to guarantee that kind of safety. That's, in my opinion, brilliant because from a human perspective, something that gets me really excited you know, is that maybe I can, from Switzerland, create you know, a really strong unbreakable agreement, not like paper contracts probably, and you know, having a great enforcement in a peer-to-peer -peer way with, with one guy from the other part of the world. This, it's, it's really exciting. That's the, maybe one of the, my favorite parts of smart contracts. Okay, so I wanted to sort of ask specifically about, I mean, it's all great to, to hear about, um, you, know, what, what, you know, what the future can provide. And I want to know more about, okay, what are the current blockchain platforms that you guys are seeing that are actually deploying smart contracts in, in a sensible way or in a way that you think is actually robust and makes sense? And if so, what what applications are actually out there that we're seeing or are in development that sort of currently in, in, in development? Well, I think the answer is it's the early stage now. We're dot matrix, we're dialer. Um, so the Ethereum platform, as you know, you can encode uh, self-executing Boolean, uh, logical, binary kind of contracts within it. It's fine, A plus B equals C, money comes in, transfer title, easy. But that's not the future of smart contracts. Smart contracts, to be smart, have to start thinking. They have to encode deep learning, machine learning, and AI. Yeah. They have to have the ability to choose. You know, it's not so much was the jumper delivered red or on time, it's going to be much more complex contractual terms. Did the seller act reasonably? Was there a force majeure? Was something, was, did something happen in the meantime? Was there a flood? And can it get from an oracle the data to prove that there was a flood and therefore change the contract? Yeah. And at the moment, we don't have platforms where you can encode that level of complexity within them. But they're coming. Uh, the Deloitte survey in May last year said 42% of businesses in the retail and sort of similar sectors, 42% of the leading companies around the world in those sectors are investing at least $5 million each in blockchain development. So the market is crying out for a solution in an inefficient contracting world, a solution which is global in a world of barriers, boundaries, borders, and tariffs. And that's why I think we are going to see either current platforms expand or new platforms come on where we can really encode deep learning into the contractual process, supervised by an oracle, 
probably a universal oracle, sitting over the top, which is the pressure valve on a self-executing contract. Can you quickly ex explain what an oracle is? Because you mentioned it a few times. Oh, no problem. It's like having a, a judge, but it could be a computerized judge or a human judge. And the concept is, if you let the program just run and run and run, let's say the program says that for each day of delay, there's a, a tender and penalty. But if it's impossible to actually deliver the goods, does that go on forever? Well, the contract will think it will. It will just keep going. So you, you, I am of the view you need a pressure valve. And that pressure valve is to be able to, for the contract to say, something's not quite right. I want to go and get some external input. And that external input could be computer input. So it could be from the Met Office. It could be from the public register. Or it could be to a human committee or a human or a arbitral panel. And that panel has the right to instruct the computer what to do with that problem. The unique thing and the beautiful thing about it is right now, it's the parties that go and complain if there's a problem. In the future, it's the contract itself which will go and seek advice. The parties won't be involved. So we're moving into a world in which lawyers' clients aren't going to be contracting parties. They're going to be self-executing contracts. What law firm do you know is ready to take instructions from a self-executing contract? So there's a whole load of infrastructure work to do, but it's hugely exciting. It's a, it really is a revolution in the way that lawyers need to think. But the upshot of it is seamless, enforceable contracts which are unambiguous. And I think that's so important for the world. We've got two people on the one side. We've got the lawyers and we've got the non-lawyers. So we, we know about the bar in the US and we have, you, get a, 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 you go and graduate from legal and you end up getting the permission to go practice law, right? If somebody's writing smart contracts, will they, because they're basically writing law into a contract, and then somebody's going to accept the, that contract as a, uh, an agreement between two parties, right? Will, that, will the person building the contract need to have finished school or gone to law school and graduated and say, yes, I vet that as an official contract? That's a good question. In, 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 uh, first of all, in, in my opinion, we should, uh, you know, there is the famous uh, sentence about code is law. I would say code might be law. So basically, it depends on how you build up a smart contract, and everyone knows the concept of a Ricardian contract. So I will maybe explain a bit more. So a Ricardian contract is a smart contract which basically embeds some elements of nat natural language. So the right question is, first of all, to, to be able to answer properly to your question is, do we really need some kind of elements of natural languages in a dry code smart contract? My answer, and I think also from a common law perspective from Mark, is yes. Because, for example, some essential elements of a legal agreement, like, for example, the, you know, acceptance, the offer and the acceptance, and, I don't know, for example, the competent jurisdiction and the applicable law, they must be stressed out. So the Ricardian contracts normally is that basically this smart contract, which includes some legal terms. My theory, my, our approach of my team in JURE is that this embedding should be done with a simple hash for not overcharging, you know, of data, a ledger, a DLT. But um, apart this, this point is, in my opinion, I am a I'm really disruptor on this topic, but at the same time, I'm a bit conservative. So I would say, yes, they should complete their faculty and probably get the barrister, you know, habilitation. Because I think that the culture of also from a legal perspective, if you want to innovate, you, want, you, need, you need to know your roots. You can't, you can't basically see the future if you don't know 
your history. But at the same time, I love you know to try new things and learn by doing. So yes, I think that the new lawyers need to be strong on the you know on the past as well. But at the same time, to be extremely quick in quick quick in learning new things and build up contracts, smart contracts as well. And I think that new generations will do a great job in that direction. Well, I'm not I'm not convinced that we move to a smart contract world where a party can force the other party to an inflection point where they have to see a lawyer. And I'm not sure you're suggesting that, that sort of concept of being able to go to a barrister. The beauty of smart contracts is one side can't force the other into what I'll call cheating on the contract. So I don't want to pay, so I'll make a fuss, I'll make us go to lawyers and I'll delay the payment for years. That's what's going wrong in international contracting. And I don't think you're saying that should change. So actually, um, you, you can say code is law, that's why it's called the civil code, it's codification of a set of principles, whether you do it in binary or whether you do it in, in Roman script or Arabic script, you're still codifying a set of principles. But I think it'll get smarter, much smarter. If you take someone like LexisNexis, you can go to LexisNexis and you can have access to anything ever written in law about a particular legal system, Italian law or English law. So why can't you say in your smart contract, it's subject to the laws of France? If, there's a, if the smart contract has a question about interpretation, then you, the smart contract simply plugs into a platform like LexisNexis, interrogates the platform, which gives it an answer, and it carries on based on that answer. Why can't we be in a world where technology is able to interrogate vastly more data than any lawyer, come to a conclusion, and then based on that conclusion, execute a decision? If that happened, you're starting to get into a position where you're coding contracts which will ultimately contract themselves. We will get to the stage where machines are self-contracting. You'll drive to a petrol station and there'll be a negotiation between your car and the petrol pump or the electricity pump for the best price. In the UK now, you can go to a, you can have a, a contract on your behalf which is negotiating with energy companies on a sort of hourly basis mm -hmm. and flipping your energy supply based on the lowest quote for energy for that period of time. So we're already at the stage where machines are starting to contract on your behalf, mm -hmm. self-contracting. So I think as technology gets deeper, we'll not only have machine contracting, but when they get stuck, they'll have a reference point, which may be to a legal system, maybe to a set of principles or best practices. We then get to, I think, the point of truly efficient contracting. That's why people say, oh, it's terrifying. That's terrifying. Machines contracting with each other. It's sort of, you know, that's a Facebook example where they put the negotiation protocols together and they came up with a new language. That's the reality of it. Um, that's where we're going. And... My, my suggestion will be, in a world in which machines are starting to contract, prices will go down. In a, in a world in which people can negotiate in real time through the use of technology, they can get the best price. So we cut out overcharging, we cut out surplus, and we cut out fat. I love the example now of negotiating insurance minute by minute. So if you're in your car and you want to go crazy fast, that day your insurance premium will be high. If you drive more carefully, your insurance premium will lower it. If you don't drive at all, it's lower still. Now, as a consumer, isn't it fabulous to know that when you go on a two-week holiday and you leave your car in the drive, you're paying basic theft cover. But when you decide to take it to the local racetrack and hoon it around, then your insurance will reflect the risk that you represent. These kind of real-world examples prove to me that in a smart contracting world, people get better off. And I'll finish with this. Why can't I lend to a microfinance scheme in Africa. 
Why can't we now all donate $100 and allow somebody to have a microfinance scheme in Africa? Because the commissions and the processes and the transfers and the contracts, they're all too difficult. We'll lose the money before it arrives. Mm -hmm. In a world in which somebody can set up a platform, donation comes in, automatically lent out, contracts are done immediately, repayment is done in the same way. We can actually start to transfer wealth into environments that otherwise would be impossible for us to access, microfinance being a good example. So we are, you know, we're at that zenith, we're at that point now, that inflection point. The, the tide of smart contracting is turned. We need it now more than ever because real world contracts aren't working. And that's why I think we're at that point. I just wanted to sort of like, whenever I think of smart contracts, I think of it sort of like, flip, sort of literally flicking a switch. It's if and then, right? Um, it's basically the, the concept that if I do this, then this happens. And we, and we see this with regular database technology as well, but difference from blockchain, it's all decentralized. It has a decentralized manner where every node has to sort of agree to execute that contract. But do you, when, when you say that we have to go sort of a level deeper into it, does that basically mean the current concept of smart contracts we will not see ever again or just sort of die away and what we'll be seeing is new platforms that will have a bit of AI into it or, you know, they might, even the concept of object programming, something like that, which I've heard is that should be the answer to smart contracts being deployed uh, rather than the Ethereum sort of style. So if you could, one of you could explain that sort of notion. We'll both do it, I think, because we're both coming at it, both from someone who's done it mm. and, and someone who's thought about it, that's me. We are at, as I said, we're at the dial-up. We really are at the dot matrix phase. So yes, it is one plus one equals two, or if A then B. And that's where we started. If you remember, I had a Commodore 64, which has 64K of RAM. And Commodore's tagline was, you'll never need more. And so we're at that stage of programming now where the blockchain platforms are starting to incorporate a desire to have Boolean, a, you know, if A, then B. Okay. But we're going to move way beyond that. We're going to get to the point where you can, you can code in contracts that think. So if A, then in the circumstances, bearing in mind a number of data sources, and based on an analysis of the law by accessing legal databases, then perform function B. If in doubt, go C. And it will get much, much, much more smart in that sense. I would like to link also for giving you my two cents on this topic. Basically, I think that I love the Mark approach and I think in some way we can summarize this, you know, this, this stuff which is going to be, you know, happening in the next years, like a quest for being smarter as a smart company smart contract because for example we are going to publish one article by my CTO about th the fact that you were telling before you know if, if we think about the vending machine of Zabo this is not really smart this is halfway dumb in some way you know so basically really this from a legal perspective is crucial to be understood because what Mark is explaining and which is to me is extremely clear is that there is there was a reason if for a thousands of years basically let's say at least Two thousands of years from ancient Roman law, law has been so complex because if you want to put 
a lot of these elements and subjective elements in a contract which is safe for both parties, you need to put a lot of effort and attention. So I think that the quest of the next 10 and 15 years will be exactly in that direction. So basically there will be an evolution from if A, then B, which is basically an informatic syllogism in something more elaborated, in which there will be a door that can be opened to external oracles. But let's, if we want, just think together to a bit, a bit more on the concept of oracle. Exactly, it can be a software oracle or a human oracle, but a dispute resolution, a judge, in some way, technically speaking, it's exactly an oracle because basically it's, it's a smart contract exactly, which basically go in stopping mode and says, hey, let me, let me ask to someone which is expert in this field how I should go on in this way. And the, the example, which is the first time I hear made by Mark, it's really interesting because if we can do in the future also calling, for example, legal databases and maybe also, I don't know, experts which are not properly judge, judges, but, but maybe some kind of, I, this is something we are thinking about, George, so not exactly a judge, but a kind of project manager of the business relationship. So it's a kind of prejudgment phase. I see in that a possible future, which is not you know, foreseeable today. I am as well excited about that. And from my side, the, you know, I, I really like to you know, try to bring you know, to, to, to the people really the chance to build up this relationship in a, in a quick way. But as well, you are really right. Today, we, are, we have a kind of dumb kid in our hands and we need to give time and, you know, to him to make the first steps and grow up slowly or hopefully fastly. Last point from my side, which is interesting, I hope it's not too much technical, is I think that there is another really interesting direction of this, of this world. When we are thinking about machine learning, which is as well a technology who has to you know, improve and grow up a lot, as you know, basically expert says, Say, um, I am thinking also that when a smart contract asks to a database about you know, interpretation or what to do, uh, in some way it will be able also to learn by the previous experiences and questions. So I see you know, something like which will be a kind of ecosystem in which the Oracle will be a component also for teaching to the machine how to evolve. And in some way, this will be the next big topic, I think, of the, from a legal perspective to interpret in some way, because I think that machine learning and interpretation in some way with some good clusters over the 20 years, of course, I'm not saying tomorrow, please, but in 20 years, yeah. it will be able to do a good stuff. What do you? Yeah, I say 10 years. <laughs> 10 years. I, 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 I tell you why. We've got Alpha Zero beating Stockfish 8, right? Which is, which is an extraordinary ability for it to learn a set of rules which are not based on human input and defeat the world's greatest chess computer. We've got Alibaba's AI on the Stanford reading and comprehension test with AI technology reading and understanding better than humans. We've got the Facebook example of the creation of a new language which is a better negotiation protocol. And you've got the Law Geeks experiment in which a computer was able to interpret a contract better and faster than a lawyer. So we're, we're actually perfectly primed now for technology to start to take an interpretive role on contractual terms, which takes us away from if A then B to here's a whole load of, load of sort of ambiguous and subjective ideas you as a computer work on the facts you've got, and if you need any more, go and ask someone else, yeah. and then come up with a conclusion. The safety valve, though, is what happens if the conclusion's wrong? Yeah. You know, and, and that's, I think, an area that needs, this trust issue needs to be worked on, because if parties are concerned the computer could make a bad decision and it can never be changed, then I don't think people will embrace the technology. 
And that takes us to where's the safety valve, where's the pressure valve in the, in the system. So there's a, 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 exactly um, as we've said, that we're at an early stage now, but goodness, we're going to be on a, a high acceleration path. You know what's quite exciting about all of this is the fact that obviously every country in the world has their own definition of the law and how to interpret actions between parties. There are no borders with smart contracts if, if applied to a chain that's got that feasibility. Is there going to be a law that wins? Or, I'm not a lawyer, but is there a, is there a, cons a general consensus amongst lawyers globally that they all think the same way, they're just precluded by the jurisdiction they're in to think in a certain way. But really, you know, I promise to do this for you and you do this for me, and that's a contract. And there are terms, but my country says I'm not allowed to interface with that country, therefore we cannot do this contract or we have to do a special structuring on the language. What's gonna happen? Because eventually, as is borderless, the language and what is the definition of a legal binding thing, even if it's coded, will become neutralized. It'll be like a universal language. I find this question extremely interesting because basically it's one of the um, you know, crucial and um, foundational point of what we are doing from a theoretical perspective. So to make a long story really short, our vision is that there won't be basically one law made by states between you know, for business relationships. So I'm not talking about criminal law or public law, but for civil law, our vision is that there will be a legal pluralism enabled, enabled by blockchain. So we call that, and we are publishing an article on the Global Jurist, I think in the next month, made by us, we won a call for paper, uh, the concept is Lex Mercatoria, which is not exactly Lex Cryptographica. What does it mean? Uh, our vision is that, thanks to also decentralized basically ledger, when there will be you know, legally binding arbitration thanks to an arbitration clause, I can come back on this concept if they are not clear, basically people will be able, experts will be able to draft simplified legal frameworks for specific verticals. So my vision is that for a freelance agreement on a global scale, there will be a specific handbook and also a jurisprudence, maybe simplified and really like in you know, informatic development, object related less sometimes general and abstract. So my vision is that there will be, yes, global basically legal frameworks, but made by privates. And those legal frameworks will be put in competition between them in a fair, probably, way, and they, which, which will be, in my opinion, the next big thing that hopefully we will be helping, enabling, that you as an individual, as an entrepreneur, you will be able to choose your jurisdiction, your set of rules according to the best one. So this is the kind of competition which basically enhances the power of individuals and basically also make the job of the states less, you know, tough in some way. Because if individuals and enterprises are able to, you know, self-regulated as long they don't violate the public order of any of every country, there is the room for private, you know, jurisdiction, and that's what we say when we talk in these days about rise of private jurisdiction. These are big stuff from a theoretical perspective, and I hope to be clear on the on, on this point, it's, which is interesting. So let me explain you with a pra practical example what we are helping to do is that a single company that wants to outsource from Switzerland a 50K software development activity from Switzerland to India will be able not only to create a smart contract, but to pick up a set of rules which are going to integrate in case of dispute or wrong point, missing point, that code 
according to their preferences, and they will pick up that according to reviews, in our case decentralized and then incorruptible, so that their relationship will be efficient and in any case really fast. That's what we, I think, like, and that's, I think, it will be a big change also according to a general legal theory perspective. And can I pick up on that public policy point that you made? And that, that I think, is going to be one challenge, right? Because the smart contract doesn't care about legal issues such as unconscionability, unfairness, illegality. A contract for input is death announcement of person A triggers payment from person B to person C, a hitman contract. The smart contract doesn't care it's a hitman contract. It doesn't, it, it doesn't know it's a hitman contract. It doesn't have a conscience. It, that's a public policy kind of, you can't enforce a contract like that, right? That's, Every legal system in the world would say that, but the smart contract doesn't care. And if you have two pseudonym, pseudonymous, pseudonymous parties, then the, the system doesn't know who's actually contracting. And if payment's being made in cryptocurrency, then whilst they can see the flow, they don't know exactly who it's gone to. So one of the beauties of smart contracts is that they're enormously efficient. But one of the challenges is you can do very bad things with them because the contract doesn't know that it's doing a bad thing. And I wonder where, we're gonna, where, we'll, end, where we'll end up on that. M my thought is you can't really code that way, I suppose. I, I, I'm just thinking out loud. What you could do is what you do with contracts today, right? You draft it and say, we're going to have a contract, but it has to have a law clause. It has to be governed by a certain law take, say, laws of France or laws of UAE or laws of England. If you make it an obligation to choose a jurisdiction's law, then the smart contract would interrogate that legal system, as we discussed, you know, accessing a database, and validate that the subject matter of the contract is not void in that jurisdiction. It could do that. But these are some of the interesting issues that are, have to be worked through. But it will be, I agree with you, it will be entirely up to the parties which legal system they want to govern their contract. There won't be a single legal system that will become a unifying legal system. We're not living in a world today where we're seeing unification. We're living in a world today where we're seeing fracture and therefore it will be up to the parties to choose a particular system. Okay, this brings up another question that just pops straight into my head. Are the lawyers going to push this or is it going to be the client that demands it? Where's it going to come from, <laughs> right? So. These are $1 million questions. Yeah. <laughs> um, can I answer in two years from now? So, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll pause. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll you, you We're waiting now, right? Yeah. Yeah. You have to answer. I, 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 I have one, one answer based on our network. So my idea is that there will be that there is already a, a, a strong early adopters community being by you know really forward thinking lawyers. Mark is one of them and I would be also even if I'm not practicing and I'm doing you know uh, this this role as a CEO. So basically, I think that the you know the big change will start with really forward-thinking lawyers that they will be also willing to create a kind of you know competitive advantage, a first mover position for them. In my way, they will do they will play an important role and uh, they will play an important role in some way. That said, that said, I I think once you know normal people will understand what really there, there will be a stake, the real adoption will come from normal people. But I think, uh, you know, uh, in my opinion, probably a big, you know, uh, initial step uh, forward will be made thanks to really forward thinking lawyers, so professionals, then there will 
there will come, you know, normal people, users, clients, asking to their lawyers to do that. And as today happens for people in technology, they won't find easily a tech-oriented lawyer, and they will switch and find a new one. And uh, yeah, and and probably then there will come the masses of um, the, the, the lawyers. But it's just a, you know an idea. And uh, what do you think? No, I think we can't let this podcast being recorded just after the Belt and Road um, Conference, which is held in Beijing. That's 125 countries, what I would call 65 core countries, $6 trillion project across a minimum of 65 countries, but going up to 125. It has to unify the supply chain, it has to make the supply chain efficient, and it has to make the contracts enforceable across a vast array of geographies, a vast array of legal systems, and with a huge amount of money at stake. So who will drive the use of smart contracts to develop an efficient and enforceable contracting network? Well, the state that wants to protect its investment. So I think it will be client-led. It'll be global clients, oil companies and banks who say we want to unify our legal risk, we want to make sure our contracts are enforceable, we want to make sure we can recover the money that's due to us, and therefore, as a law firm, if you can't support us in delivering this technology, then we'll find another one. So I, I, I think that's where it will come from. So you, you mentioned that you've been working on the One Belt, One Road um, sort of initiative. Oh, you're so last year. It's Belt and Road initiative now. Belt and Road initiative. is like, oh, oh my God. <laughs> that was bore. <laughs> Obor is a bit better. Anyways, um, can you tell us a bit more about sort of what you're working on and how are you, are you actually implementing sort of a governance model in place for smart contracts for this unification? Well, six years ago, I predicted that the Chinese state would implement a state's blockchain. Everyone said I was an idiot, including the people in China. Uh, and yet now we have, one, I think, one of the most exciting and perhaps powerful state blockchains uh, which has been developed there. I think there's a couple on the way. Um, now, the natural flow of trying to spend $6 trillion across 65 geographies with varying legal systems is uh, uniformity and certainty and making it modular, making it scalable. And it wouldn't surprise me one bit if that's not going to be done through the use of smart contract technology embedded within the Chinese state blockchain. Why? Because legal risk has a price. If you lend money to a company that you know will never pay it back, the value of the loan is nil. Your earnings from the loan are nil. So the legal risk is priced directly into your cost of lending and the cost of doing business. If you can lower legal risk by having greater certainty your contract will be honoured, then you either maximize profitability if you're a bank, or it means you can invest greater funds to achieve better outcomes if you're a government. So it does seem to me large-scale globalizing, and bear in mind Belt and Road is probably the only major globalizing initiative at the moment, pushing against, largely from the West, a deglobalizing border boundary tariff tax environment. Um, that deglobalizing initiative needs efficiency and modern contractual arrangements are not efficient, nowhere near as efficient as smart contracts. And that's why my sense, although I, I'm not sure many people are in agreement with me as they weren't in agreement about a Chinese state blockchain, is the leading provider of smart contract technology and the, the new platform that we discussed, which embeds really deep learning capacity, will not come from the West. It will come out of the nation most in need of it. It will come out of China. Mic drop. <laughs> um, okay, so if we if we look at the implementation of smart contracts into enterprise, because you brought it up, it being there's a lot of friction, therefore there's a need for them to 
build it because of the savings. They're investing trillions of dollars. It's going to cost a lot of money to build a system that is going to scale across countries. It's going to be resilient to whatever attacks, whatever approach that might happen to it. Therefore, they've got the money to invest because obviously the, the big game plan is there. Where are they going to get all the, the, the support from in those countries? Are they going to provide the banking infrastructure to support then the smart contracts that might have to terminate payments or remit finance or whatever it is? Are they, we know what China is doing. They're going into Russia. They're going into a lot of countries and they're providing infrastructure. And they're obviously banking that and financing it. So how will this global plan across all these countries be settled when it comes to the contracts being executed or terminating? But I mean, that's the beauty of smart contracting is you don't worry about domestic legal systems. At the moment, if you or I invest in a market with a poor legal system, a poor judiciary, a one where we can't be certain of getting our money back, and we have to rely on that system to get our money, then we're firstly uncomfortable investing, and secondly, we invest, we want a lot of money back. But the beauty of the blockchain is it doesn't have borders, boundaries, and tariffs. The beauty of the blockchain is it doesn't have a court, a domestic court that can hold you up or stop you getting paid. And the beauty of a smart contract is it's self-executing. So if the terms of the Belt and Road funding, let's say for a high-speed rail contract, is backed by some form of gold deposit held under the Federal Reserve in New York or under the Bahnhofstrasse in Zurich, and the smart contract says that if there is an attempt to nationalize the asset, then immediately the gold, is the title is transferred back to the lender, then you've, you've got a secure smart contract, which ensures that a renationalizing effort, which may well happen in some countries, there's a financial incentive not to do it. And, and that's how I think they'll avoid the domestic issues that you referred to. So I, I, I get that concept, but how realistic is the in interaction interoperability between the blockchain and the actual real world sort of link? So I'm sure the blockchain has to interact with whatever systems, the, the gold reserves, you know, the, 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 the treasury or the company that has the, the gold reserves actually use, right? So A, there would have to be a technical integration and B, there'd have to be actual sort of agreement between all parties for there to be that interaction, for that smart contract to work. At what stage currently are we at where, okay, the, the, sort of the other parties have agreed for, the, for the, the interactions to take place? The answer to that is, if, it's a, if the question is, would the gold reserve under the Federal Reserve in New York release the gold off the back of an instruction from a contract, then we know the answer to that. And it's likely to be a long time coming that there won't be that, dependent, that title dependency on what a contract spits out. But you can be much smarter as a lawyer. So if you were to say that upon reports of an attempt to nationalize, the debt falls due secured against the gold reserve, non-payment of the debt becomes a dispute. And the dispute can then be sent to a single arbitrator or using Jure or another network to produce a binding decision in New York. That can be done incredibly quickly because there's no arguable case, there's no defense. So you get your piece of paper, which is binding in New York, and you take it to the Federal Reserve. You say, see that pile of gold over there? There's my judgment. Don't move it without my instructions. So therefore, you can enforce very quickly smart chain obligations, smart contract 
blockchain obligations in the real world today using systems like JAW and others to have enforceable awards that come out of them. So you just, you just innovated an answer against a, a challenge thrown at you, but how many lawyers out there can think like that to solve these problems? Because obviously we're talking about Belt and Road, but we could be talking about some smart, dynamic enterprise in the UK or a group of people that want to do this and their lawyers are traditional lawyers that are very focused. So is it going to be the big lawyers spinning off these digital lawyers or is it literally just going to be new startup law firms that have just come out of nowhere and are like, you know what, we're, brilliant. we're tech we're companies, right? but we're lawyers, right? We're startup companies to solve the problem. Yeah, yeah, you are the answer. Sure. So anybody needs the solution? And also, and I'd add on question to this, what will be the roles for, for lawyers going forward? Okay, okay. Guys, let, let me tell you this story which is, in my opinion, you know, in interesting. I have been, in the last six months, I have probably spoken with, uh, I don't know, a couple of hundreds of lawyers of different entities, big ones, medium, solo lawyers of Europe, Asia, USA. Last week I was in San Francisco speaking with one of the big one law firm. So my, my, my take is that in some way, on that side of... We, 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 before we're saying about the big companies going to the big law firm asking for a smart legal contract of high quality, I honestly don't see that in the in short term. Why? Because they are a bit of elephantiac structures, and when you talk with them, they uh, they need a lot of time. And we have we had a lot of you know uh, with a lot of talks for you know this project, absolutely enthusiastic about that and whatever, but they are slow. So my, my humble take on that is that there will be the fast mover, the small one, the normal, let's say the, the, the sole lawyers which are independent and a bit, you know, adventurer that can be able to, you know, drive this innovation. So this is my perception talking mostly every day with, of course, forward thinking lawyers, all amazing guys. But if you talk also with the head of innovation, I can't do the name, but of a big law firm, it may be really like the project, but it can't do anything, especially when the partners maybe are scared and whatever. So it's not that, you know, there is no conflict or whatever, but I see more innovation in the medium sides, maybe sometimes even, you know, law firms with 150 lawyers, which are not really small, but, you know, they're not huge. Uh, so you were, the second question was about how do you see lawyers in the future, right, of this? Well, mm, it's a big topic. I will, I will give you a piece and then we, uh, a piece of the, the answer and then I will pass the word to Mark and then I will maybe answer again. Otherwise, I could talk of, about this topic for hours and at uh, this time with my English is not the best for our public. So basically, the, my short answer, the first one is, I think that they will become in some way product, product creators in some way. So today, basically, uh, legal activity is mainly a one-off consultancy, one-off activity. You have to work every time for providing one high-quality service to one single customer. I think that one of the drivers, but there are a few more, and I think Mark can integrate really well, is that basically they will be able to draft products which can scale potentially to millions of people. And in the future, for this reason, lawyers have to take a big decision or they will work for, you know, improving a machine. So they will work for legal tech companies, big, you know, subjects to do that. Or probably they, they won't be able to do it the legal profession as per today. So I, I see this kind of productization of legal consultancy and also the contractualization of contract, basically contractual activity. 
they, uh, of course, one-off activity won't, won't disappear ever because in, such, in some fields there will be a strong need for that and in that case technology will support the one-off activity. But if we are tackling this, uh, addressing this topic from the blockchain angle, I would say that one of the drivers will be this productization of the real activity, which is not something, you know, dishonorable or bad. Because in my point of view, as a lawyer as well, I would be really happy to be able with my quality and my expertise to impact to potentially 10,000 of people because I really made a kick-ass work on my smart legal contract. So from my perspective, I would be happy to be part of this change. And at least people with, we are talking in this period are really happy about this idea. They're not thinking, oh, they are, stolen, they are, they are stealing um, my job. On the contrary, they are enhancing the quality, the attitude, the scalability, the potential of my job. Do you want me to share with you a seven and a half billion dollar idea? Yeah, oh. go for it. Okay. <laughs> no, but there's anyone who does this, there's a commission that's due to all of us in this room. So the Hague Institute for Innovation and Law did a 80,000 person survey around the world and found that on average around the world every year there's one billion legal problems. Now, only half of them are serious. By serious, I mean keep people awake at night, puts pressure on their family, puts pressure on their ability to work effectively, and makes them sick, put pressure on the state. So half a billion serious issues that keep people awake at night and put stress and illness into the community. What percentage of that half a billion go and see a lawyer? 60%. 16%, God, you were I listening. Really, really, really <laughs> 16%. So 84% do not go and see a lawyer. That's like having a huge hole in your leg, pouring blood and saying, oh, I don't think I'll go and see a doctor. Maybe it'll get better. So if you take the gap, there's 420 million people who have a serious legal issue, currently don't see a lawyer. The opportunity for lawyers is massive. So the question was then asked, how much would you pay for legal advice that helps you to solve your serious issue, right? Now, the OECD countries said that they would pay on average $50 for online type advice that helps them through the problem. So 420 million is the global issue. Let's just assume it's 150 million people in the OECD. It's probably more than that, but let's just assume 150 million. And each of them is willing to pay $50. Well, I'm a lawyer, so I'm no good at maths, but that sounds to me like $7.5 billion of people willing to invest in law tech solutions for major legal issues. And that market's untapped. Lawyers aren't looking at that market. So it's, I don't think lawyers are gonna be out of business, but smart lawyers will make a lot of money and perhaps less smart lawyers will find another job. I think that's what will happen. Can I just one point on, the, on, this, on this interesting, you know, uh, angle? I, I, I left the word to Mark because I, I hear, the, yeah, I, I confess, I didn't know before about the 16%, but it is something I'm going to reuse also on my Twitter. So trademark Mark. No, I'm just, I'm just joking. But basically, uh, one interesting part is that this, this angle, this, 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 this point of view, it's really interesting to me because if we, basically, it's really clear and an easy position to say that if you know we are going to forward uh, products. Uh, or membership, for example, I think if you activate this, you know, sleeping base today that is unhappy because is, they are running a lot of, you know, risks and a lot of companies probably die and entrepreneurs suicide because they are not really well assisted. So I think you are doing something good for people, but at the same time you are activating, 
activating a potential you know, demand for some products that can reduce the price as well. So I think there will be a lot of movements in the next 10, 20 years in this direction, which will make really more democratic the access to legal, pro to legal advice and maybe also to justice. This is interesting. Well, and of course the data gets worse because 16% see a lawyer. How many people with a serious legal issue actually go to the state institutions set up to help them? How many people go to court? What percentage of people lying awake at night with worry and getting sick actually go to the state institution set up to help them? What do you think? 5%. Okay, and of the 5% that go, what percentage are unhappy with the court system? It's lower, 70%. Remember, half of one. 70% are unhappy. Now, translate that into medical. Imagine a society which said, look, of the people that are seriously sick, 84% won't see a doctor. Only 5% will go to hospital. And the ones that do go to hospital, 70% thought the, the help that they got in hospital was rubbish. We'd say that was terrible, wouldn't we? Wouldn't we be offended? Wouldn't we be deeply embarrassed? And wouldn't we be fighting to reform a system which is clearly broken? But why don't we feel that way about justice? What is it that means that we feel a really emotive bond to good professional medical help, but we're willing to tolerate inefficiencies in our justice system and in our legal system? I don't know how long that will continue for, but the gap has to be filled and it's likely to be filled by the private sector, in my view. Can I just jump in quickly on that one? Oh, yeah. No, sorry, I just wanted to add, because this topic is it's really interesting to me, one, one, one topic. I speak a, a lot of time with, you know, guys with, um, abroad, outside the legal profession. So sometimes when you are disrupting something, you know, if the uh, people you are talking with are not, have not a clear idea about the size of the problem, they maybe underestimate, you know, what maybe, what can we do with legal technology. Let me tell you basically just one small data. So maybe a lot of young guys don't know that for getting a first degree judgment, you can basically wait up to three years on a worldwide average. This basically, this data come from the uh, worldwide bank. So enforcement contract, uh, you know, report, you can Google it. And the cost of this activity for accessing to justice can go up to 56% with an average of 35 on Europe, Asia and USA. So. This data maybe can complete the data provided by Mark. And the real question here is, you really are realizing that today, which is today we are basically get used to this inefficiency because we wake up in the morning and we think, oh, I'm not going to make a legal action to, um, uh, against someone because basically I don't have 10K for, a, for example, a California lawyer. I, with Jure, we, we didn't go forward for a legal action for a 40k credit because it was so, so expensive and the risks were so high and we te technically are funded. How about, you know, normal companies, not startup and whatever. So this problem is not a technical problem, it's not something which is not regarding to you because uh, jobs are, lo are lost thanks to this inefficiency. Entrepreneurs basically have to close companies and lose jobs again thanks to this inefficiency. So I want just to, you know, identify better these problems. When today we are talking about smart contracts and the dispute resolution, we are not just talking about, you know, the general theory, I don't know, of the uh, Byzantine problem or whatever. We are talking about something which is really concrete and impact on everyday life of people, which is in my opinion, that's why we are really excited about legal technology. It's not something, oh, we want to you know, improve legal agreements because are more fancy and whatever. No, 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 we are going to do something which is really useful for your daily life if you want to open a startup or a regular shop or whatever as a professional. Yeah, 
And to add on that, think about data on SMEs. So the world relies on SMEs. They are the economic force. What's the number one factor worldwide that kills an SME dead? It's not the ideas. It's not the talent. It's cash flow. Because they can't get paid. Because, as you say, they go to the judge. The judge says, oh, let me think about it for a year or two. Then the other side appeals. They're three or four years in. How long will their landlord wait to be paid? How long will their staff wait to be paid? So having self-executing contracts so the SME gets paid on time, what the SME is due, drives that economic force because the SME sector is such a vital part of it. And I think you know these are real-world examples that you've raised here of how the smart contracts will make a massive difference. Countries that embrace it will have entrepreneurial growth and talent. Countries that deny it will simply stagnate. Exactly. Totally agree. OK, so now you've mentioned some very, very interesting points. Which... Well, now. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, did we bore you? <laughs> I just woke up, sorry. <laughs> which, which, I know we keep talking about a, a, a non-jurisdictional location, but you've mentioned very big holes that have great opportunity, the challenges that create opportunity. Which country, let's take a democracy for now, which one is going to take this on? So which one is going to fill this gap? You're talking about all those small enterprises that ha don't have access to a service. They've got a hole in their heart and they basically have to bleed to death because they have no support for legal contracting. They can't get paid by someone they have a contract with. Is the UK going to do it? Is the UAE going to do it? Is it going to be some new spin-off entity? No, no, no. There is one clarification to, 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 to be done, basically. In our view, because we are pretty aligned on, this, on these topics, won't be states, won't be countries. We don't, the, the, the beauty of this concept, in my opinion, as long as there is an arbitration clause, the today legal framework allows basically currently arbitration on the blockchain. So basically, there is not a need of you know uh, a country going you know on these topics, but it's enough the current legal framework. What we have to do is to use basically what we already have in a better way, thanks to also to blockchain technology and also maybe you know some creative idea about you know legal systems. So then there are some countries understanding the importance of this activity and we will be used by a government as sure. But can, can we uh, talk about some of those countries? Because maybe there are people listening to the podcast that would like yeah, to know where, this, they would, this where they're going to be able to get this started. <laughs> no, the, the, yeah, this information I unfortunately can't disclose this, the specific name of this country, but in a few weeks, maybe time, yes. So uh, basically, it, it's just for saying that, you know, some countries are understanding the importance to this new kind, basically to give the job to get justice in a more efficient way to someone, to, to some entities, private ones, that can do better. This is the scheme, to, you know, not overcomplicate the things. States can't basically manage in an excellent way justice. They have an overburden of, you know, civil disputes. If private entities can do better, as you know, even to the arbitration, it's okay. But the problem of arbitration today is that it is extremely expensive and costly. What we basically, technology, not necessarily our project, I, I, I'm talking about generic topics, not about us. In general, what technological startups can do is basically to improve and cut the costs in a, in a better way. About the countries, I don't know which is your idea, Mark, because uh, honestly, it's a, it's a pretty big topic and... Um, yeah, the dynamic country, somebody that's very much pushing Well, I, I question, pushing it. I, well, I appreciate there's the hole to be filled, and that, that's a whole separate discussion. But you, you said, which democracy will fill it? Is this sort of some ideologue that only democracies can solve technological solutions? We already spent enough time on China, so I wanted to talk about something else. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh, so now you're limiting what we can talk about. Well, sure. Oh, Why, my not? Goodness. Why not? <laughs> We're the editors. <laughs> you have to think which country has an economic imperative to deliver an efficient supply chain across the world. That's the country that will deliver the greatest solutions. Are they limited to that country? Of course they're not. The beauty of it is other uh, private sector and, well, and to an extent other governments can use that platform. But I go back to the internet. When the internet started, it was to be entirely decentralized and deregulated. Yeah? But then people realized we need to control that IP allocation. Right? So we had ICANN. The US became the quasi-regulator. Okay? But it doesn't have to be the US. It can be a country with an imperative to make sure the system works effectively. So could we have a court of the blockchain in China? Some would say we already have it in Hangzhou. Could we have a, a system, a, a universal oracle? Is it likely to come out of China? Yeah, I think it probably is. They've got the technology, the impetus, and the funding to do it. Does that mean that other countries can't use it? Absolutely not. It'll be an open platform. It has to be because it's a globalizing force. So I know that you're trying to sort of get us to the point of praising a democracy, and I, and I can understand why you might want us to do that. But simply from a technological point of view, without looking at any particular boundary-based piece of geography, look at the place which most needs to globalize. That's where you'll find the heart of smart contracting. I definitely agree with China 100%. I mean, I, I'm with you on that. I've seen it, experienced it. It's <laughs> tough luck on democracy, mate. <laughs> on this particular topic, personally, I, I am of a slightly different advice in some way. But again, it's, it's, you know, it's points of view. It's interesting to debate about them. Because my, at least my, you know, my thought starts from different you know, origins. Because in my humble perspective, if we think about ICANN and standards, I would prefer to think at this stage with this technology about not standard, but you know, consensus-based accepted standards, so made by private. So in my, I don't have a complete thought about that because you know we, we, we are really deeply oriented from the private you know, world, sorry, private basically um, concepts and entities and communities. But let me just stress out that my beginning of the thought comes and goes in a different direction. So to this question, personally, I would answer in a different way. I'm not thinking about standard from China or USA. I'm thinking more about, you know, let's say rules, standards, and frameworks adopted by consensus by communities. Because I think that the big change, but I might be wrong, mm -hmm. will be thanks to, you know, how decentralization works to the real, you know, adoption by consensus. So personally, I don't see countries, you know, play they will play a big role as a you know friendly approach to these kind of improvements but i i i might also don't want them to do to yeah. do much let me tell you just this story really quickly in italy which is you know really beautiful example of an effect an efficiency of justice system unfortunately for many reasons basically it took a lot of time for in, in you know implementing the Processo telematico, which means basically digital trial in public courts. In Greece, I have friends here that told me that probably it's like the law for digital law, digital trials has like 15 years, and they still don't have a digital you know platform. So if I, I'm thinking about this kind of you know reaction time, I don't see them they waking waking up one day and executing what they promise maybe what want they promise today like hey let's put on the blockchain some or let's adopt some standards about how to manage new clauses new interpretation new new problems about current legal frameworks i think i think and suggest the solutions could start and goes in a different way from and to privates but again it's just you know a beginning of the thought and i would like to discuss from with you <laughs>
I will, on that note, I think we have to <laughs> finish off, gentlemen. I think this is a really interesting discussion. This has been the longest podcast we've actually done. I can see Mark just you, smiling you, you, you and call, laughing. You call, you call two lawyers to speak in the microphone. <laughs> I don't understand why we have just one microphone. Yes, we have two. We're doing the case until Monday. Thanks. Can we finish? How do you say your name? Yeah, oh, your second yeah, name. Yeah, your yeah. second name. Oh yeah, with pleasure. My name is Alessandro Palombo, but for Palombo. for the friends, you can call me just Alex or Ele in in English. Yeah, but my my surname, I have the idea that is a bit complicated to be pronounced, right? I don't know why you're laughing, guys. <laughs> 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 Anyways, how could people contact you, Mr. Palombo? Fantastic. I made it. Fine. You're really exercising. Okay, that's fantastic. Oh, I'm, I'm on Twitter on you know Palombo. You can just you know I'm I'm on Twitter on, on with Palombo and oh, basically also my email is uh, ala at jur.io. But mm, I'm really available on Twitter every time. So how are you, Mark? Well, if you go on LinkedIn, I think there's two Mark beers on there, and one of them is an international um, a singing star. That's not me. Go for the other one. <laughs> <laughs> also, stuff. How about you, Nick? LinkedIn, as usual, best place to find me. Great stuff. We really hope you guys enjoyed it and we really would like all of you to rate this episode. And if you haven't subscribed to this podcast, please subscribe to it as soon as possible. And thank you very much again for tuning in. And thank you very much, gentlemen, for coming onto the show. Thank you, you guys. Lovely to be here.